Uh, when I was a student in 1989, uh, during O Week, there was a fire in the main quadrangle building, uh, which seemed to have its focus in the philosophy department. It was a truly spectacular affair as far as fires go. There were visible flames, massive amounts of smoke, fire engines blaring all over the place. Far from interrupting the festivities of O Week, it seemed only to add to them. We were quite delighted to have a great big fire right next to the stalls. No one could quite bring themselves to take seriously the fact that the philosophy department was burning down. I don't know how many times I heard people joking about whether there were still grey-haired philosophers in the building trying to decide whether or not the fire was real. (laughs) Philosophy, what Hegel defined simply as thinking things over, used to enjoy a position of pre-eminence in the intellectual universe for centuries. It was the pinnacle of intellectual endeavour. I don't think you could say that today. In fact, there seem to be more jokes than respect. Question, what do you get when you cross the godfather with a philosopher? An offer you can't understand. Descartes is sitting in a bar having a drink. The bartender asks him if he'd like another. I think not, he says, and vanishes in a puff of logic. Jean-Paul Sartre is sitting in a French cafe revising his draft of being and nothingness. He says to the waitress, I'd like a cup of coffee, please, with no cream. The waitress replies, I'm sorry, monsieur, but we're out of cream. How about with no milk? Yes, I didn't get that when I first read it either. (laughs) And yet at the same time, philosophy still profoundly forms how we live our lives and the values we share and act on. I've spoken to enough architects who think that they actually determine how we live our lives. But the fact remains that thoughts that begin in philosophy departments, even burnt down philosophy departments, end up as cultural movements in the wider society. The questions that philosophy asks, what is real? How do we know about reality? What are minds, if anything? And how are we to think about abstract entities like thought? What is good? And why is good good? These questions are as important as ever. They're fundamental, life-directing sorts of questions. And the fact that we're pretty much a philosophically mute society, I suspect means that we simply assume answers to these questions rather than think about them and decide. And so this afternoon, uh, in the brief time that we have together, I want us to put a break on the drip-feeding of philosophy into our minds that mostly takes place and step back a little and reflect a little more critically. And in particular, I want to do that by means of saying a few things about the relationship between philosophy and Christianity. Again, for many centuries, the two, philosophy and Christianity or theology, were virtually indistinguishable. But if philosophy has fallen on hard times, then I think it should spare us thought for Christianity. Nonetheless, what I'm saying today is, and I want you to... uh, Uh, go with me on this, at least for the sake of the argument, if we gave more time to philosophy in general, and in particular the philosophy of Christianity, then I'm convinced that we would be the better for it. So then, I have four four points to make. Uh, The first point is that Christianity is the opposite of a philosophy. Christianity is the opposite of a philosophy. Now, this first point may seem strange, but in a sense... And there will be a lot more to say, but in a sense, this is the most important thing for you to get. 
I was not born into a Christian family. My parents had nothing to do with church. I didn't grow up with any knowledge of Christianity. Rather, I became a Christian when I was convinced of its truthfulness in my late teenage years. And one of the things I remember that Christians kept saying that I kept hearing as I was doing my investigating was that Christianity was not really a religion. It used to drive me batty. Of course Christianity was a religion, I used to say. I couldn't understand what they meant, but as it turned out, they were onto something profoundly important. Most religions really fall into the category of philosophy. That is, they are theories about the way life is and therefore the way we should live if we want to live well. Most religions are in the category of philosophies. For the most part, they consist of collections of suggested timeless truths, such as, for example, desire being the cause of suffering, or karma as the way to understand things that happen in our lives. And what's at stake here in religion as philosophy are ideas, and in particular, whether your ideas are better than my ideas or her ideas are better than his ideas. That's the stuff of philosophy and of religion as philosophy. Now, the fact that most religion is a form of philosophy is not a big deal in itself. That's okay. It's just that the kind of reasons that can be given in support of a particular philosophy are often hard to decide about one way or the other. It's at this point that Christianity is so very different from all other religions. That's why my friends at the time kept on saying to me, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity falls under the category not of philosophy, but of history. That is, it's not primarily about ideas which need to be argued about. It's about events which need to be heard about. Fundamentally different category. The Christian message is really an announcement. It reports what can best be described as an achievement something that has been done in a specific time and place which was witnessed by specific people who announced the things that had happened. Of course, that specific thing focuses on Jesus and we'll have a little more to say about that in a moment. In a sense, Christianity is the sort of thing that could be recorded on a videotape, an event to be preserved and reported more than it is a philosophy. And so you see how my first point is the case Christianity is the opposite of a philosophy. To the ancient Greek city of Corinth, steeped in philosophical tradition, the Apostle Paul recognised that what was sought after was wisdom. Yes, wisdom. Deeper and deeper philosophy. But he said in his letter to the Christians in Corinth that when he went there, all he had to offer was foolishness, not wisdom. The only thing he would talk to them about was the most stupid thing Moronic, actually, is the Greek word that he uses, the most moronic thing that he can imagine. And that is Christ crucified. In one sense, it's the most stupid, pathetic thing imaginable, isn't it? A man hanging on a cross. The Apostle says, you want philosophy? Well, I've got something different from philosophy for you. I've got an event, an achievement. A man hanging on a cross, which if only you had the eyes to see it, is the great powerful victory of God over evil. Right there, the moment when heaven and earth kissed, when God took into his very being the pain and suffering of the world and overcame it and reconciled it and made a new start for the world. 
The day before that first Good Friday, you've just had a nice holiday, courtesy of uh, Christian imperialism, you know, Good Good Friday and all that kind of stuff. Well, it's, it's good for some things anyway. Uh, you've just had a Good Friday holiday. Well, the day before that good first Good Friday, the, sort of leading up to Good Thursday, that was not the case. The event had not happened. The achievement had not been made. The victory had not yet been won. The job had not yet been done. The day after Jesus died, everything changed. Not because there were some new ideas around, that would be a philosophy, but we're not doing philosophy just yet. Not because there were some new ideas, but because an event, an achievement, a victory had taken place. God had won. And being a Christian, you see, therefore, is not to adopt a philosophy. I'm not here as a kind of philosophical salesman. In one sense, all I'm doing is inviting you to get with reality. God did it. It's time to wake up to it. It's as simple as that. Let me press the point. You see, Christianity is not first and foremost about a set of timeless truths. Timeless truths don't in themselves do anything. Timeless truths educate people so they will do things. There's no achievement internal to timeless truths. They leave the achievement for the devotees of the truths or the philosophy. But Christianity, on the other hand, is all about the fact that God himself has done what we could not and did not and would not do. That in the realm of objective history, God has entered our world in the person of his son Jesus and has done the job. There is all the difference in the world between a religion or a philosophy which fundamentally says do. Do. On the basis of the truths that I tell you, do. That's religion. That's philosophy. That's all well and good. Christianity is the opposite of a philosophy at this point. Christianity fundamentally says done. God has acted. Well, that's my first point. The first thing to say that Christianity is the opposite of a philosophy. At the same time, it's also true to say that Christianity has philosophical implications. Christianity has philosophical implications. And so what I want to do now is a little compare and contrast. Remember this? Back in the good old days of the HSC, used to endlessly compare and contrast, blah, blah, well, I thought, here we go. Compare and contrast. And in particular, I want to compare and contrast Christianity and its philosophical implications with the two main philosophical alternatives that are available today. So what are the philosophical implications of the Christian faith? Well, they are these, four points. The first is this. There is a real, independent, personal, active being called God. And the specific name of God is a reflection of his specific being. His name is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. In a sense, this seems almost silly to say. But the starting point has to be the claim that there is a real, independent, personal, active being that really does exist, whose existence is not dependent on us, whose existence is not dependent on being known by us, whose reality is not changed by what we like or prefer. God is a reality just like you and I are a reality. In fact, much more real than you or I, 
real in a way that we're not, in that we come into existence and we go out of existence, but God was and always was and always is and always will be. The first philosophical implication of the Christian faith is that when we speak of God, we're not talking about human experiences or a universal human feeling, although humans may well have experiences and feelings in response to this reality, that's true, but that's not the point. Now, of course, this is in contrast to one of the great religions of our day and of our university, that is atheism. It's a religion, and in particular, its methodological cousin, materialism or naturalism. That is, the view that all things that exist, or at least the view that all things that can be known, okay, including things like love and thought, and language, and humour, and art, and literature, and morality, that all of these things can only be explained in terms of our continuity with the physical world. That these things can all be explained, and are best explained, and can only be understood in terms of electricity, and genes, and random selection. I'm saying to you, this is science as a religion what I call scientism. I'll say more in a moment about why it's uh, both a religious choice, scientism, and almost always hypocritical. Almost always hypocritical. But for now, I simply want to highlight the contrast between Christianity and materialism or naturalism. Now, what's more, this God of the Christians is a specific reality. This reality has defining characteristics just like you and I have defining characteristics. I am a male human being. I'm not a horse, although occasionally my kids treat me as though I were a horse, and for just a few moments I exhibit horse-like properties. I buck and whinny and throw them off and that sort of thing. But deep down in the reality of who and what I am, I am a male human being. You might not like that. You might hate males. You might think I'm unworthy to be a human being. But frankly, all of that's irrelevant, what you think at this point. It's what I am. I am one thing and not another, and it's the same with God. Because God is not an idea, but a reality, a concrete, specific reality. God is who and what he is. He is one thing and not another. And the reality of God is captured in his name. My name is Andrew. It comes from the Greek word anair. It means man, and so my name means manly. <laughs> it has virtually nothing to do with the reality that I am. In that sense, my name is accidental. I could just as easily have been called Cedric. Any Cedrics here? No, you see why? But God's name is the expression of God's reality. God's specific reality. His name is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That is the name of God according to Christians because that is the nature of God. You might not like it, you might not understand it, but then reality doesn't conform to what you like or understand. You have to conform your understanding to reality. Now again, that God is specifically named 
because of his specific realities in contrast to the other great religious slash philosophical option of our day, what you might call anti-realism. What I mean by anti-realism is the view that we are fundamentally the creators of our own universes by means of our perspectives, our language, our experience, our a priori categories. We structure reality. What started as a good but modest observation, the fact that we're active in the knowing process, that there's no such thing as purely objective knowledge, kind of jumps a couple of logical steps and denies that there's anything more than our activity. In fact, we are just, uh, we are the creators of reality. And then it jumps a few more logical steps and says, Given that different people have different constructions, you'll notice that, you end up with a full-grown kind of relativism which says, actually, there's nothing as such to be known anymore. There is no external reality. There's only interpretations to be suggested. The street sign says stop, but if you interpret it to mean go, then that's what it means for you. It means stop for me and it means go for you. And it's true for you and it's true for me because that's how reality is accessed according to our perspectives. Now again, in my view, this is a religious choice. It's one again which I believe is only held hypocritically. And we'll come back to it. But for the moment, hear this clearly, won't you? The fact is that God is specific. He is in his very nature, Father, Son and Holy Spirit and not something or someone else. The Christian claim includes necessarily that God is not Allah and Muhammad is not his prophet, that he is not the great ocean of being and Buddha the one who leads to enlightenment. He is not Thor nor anything else other than what and who he is. And it's simply foggy thinking to say that two things are the same that are not the same. A little while ago I read a heartwarming article about a Christian, a Muslim and a Jew who visited a school to promote peace and tolerance. It's a very worthy goal. I'm all for peace and tolerance. But the way they went about it, or at least as they were reported, was ridiculous. The Muslim representative from the Forum on Australia's Islamic Relations is quoted as pointing out that Allah was another word for God and later on a kid is quoted as saying that Christians believe in one God just like Muslims and Jews. No, we don't. No, we don't. We believe in one God whose identity is specific and precise, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. I'm all for social tolerance, as I say. In fact, it's often Christians who have been at the forefront of movements for freedom of speech and freedom of association and freedom of religion, including non-Christian religions. But social tolerance is a different thing from truth tolerance. As though the only way we can all get along is to pretend that deep down we all think the same thing. We don't. We don't, and it's actually deeply disrespectful to say so. I want to say that is the absolute heart of the Christian faith and its philosophical implications. Three things follow from it. The first is that God stands in a fundamental and asymmetrical relationship to all other things. He is creator and everything else is creation. 
By asymmetrical relationship, I mean a relationship which is not symmetrical. Uh, deep thought. I know, I know. But there you go. Where what he is to us is not what we are to him. What he is to us is our creator. What we are to him are his creatures. The point here is that all things, including all people, including you and me and this room and the chairs, are dependent upon him for our very existence. He, however, is completely independent of you. Were he to withdraw himself from you, you would cease to exist. Were you to withdraw yourself from him, he would continue to exist. When it comes to the question of personal identity, who am I? What am I? This is the most important thing to know. This, right now. This leads to a second point, which is what you might call the paradox of exclusiveness and universality. Exclusiveness sounds narrow, universality sounds broad, and it's a paradox that these two things go together. You see, it's precisely because God is the exclusive, specific creator and sustainer of all things that therefore all things, utterly and universally all things and all people, you, no matter where you've come from, what your background is, what you know, how good your life has gone so far, all things owe their love and loyalty and trust to him. That makes sense, doesn't it? You can get the point by way of a contrast. Imagine that there were two gods who got together and divided up the universe between them, a bit like Spain and Portugal did to the world in the 15th century. It would then be legitimate, wouldn't it? For 50% of people to entirely ignore God A because they belong to God B. God A couldn't touch them because they weren't his. He's not the exclusive God and so he can't make universal claims. But the Christian claim is precisely not that. It is that this specific one true and living God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit is the exclusive and specific creator of all things. Oh yes, he he used means, means, little eggs and spermies and all that kind of thing, mums and dads, you've heard about them, means. But it is God who is the creator, your creator, who made and sustains you and has an absolutely universal stake in your life and in the affairs of all the world. And the contours of that stake are wonderfully loving faithfulness. That is God's stance towards his world. A further thing follows from this by way of uh, implication And that is that this one has the moral and spiritual right and authority to determine how we creatures relate to the Creator. It's not up to us to decide what we believe about God. It's not up to us to decide how we go about responding to God. It's up to God. Another way of putting this is to say that there is such a thing as idolatry. There is false worship of God. It doesn't change the fundamental relationship between God and people. They are still creatures whom he loves and is faithful to, but it's false worship. To name God as anyone other than Father, Son and Holy Spirit is just not a matter of your preference. Just like to name me a horse doesn't fall within the power of your preferences. 
It's idolatrous. It's not harsh or narrow or bigoted to say that. It's just true. And then finally, the Christian claim is that this God has acted decisively in person. In person, not at distance, not by throwing money at the problem, not by issuing a few instructions or commands, but in person by involving himself in his son Jesus in our experience. It is in Jesus that God is known and it is in Jesus that God has acted, that he has come into our place. God himself, the son, dying in our place, dying our death, rising to new life as the start of a new phase in the way that God relates to his creation. What's more, this job that Jesus does comes in two parts. What he's begun, he will complete. You see, the claim of Easter, the other half of that holiday that you've just enjoyed, Good Friday, yes, then there's Easter Day. And Easter Day says that Jesus is still alive now. You realise that? I mean, when Christians are uh, either completely stupid or onto something pretty important, that there is a person who died and who is raised from the dead and is still alive right now. He, he exists. In fact, not just exists, but he is the upholder of all other existence. This one. Alive right now. Untouchable by death. And the point is, you see, that if you get a piece of him, if you connect to him, then you too will find your way in his power through death. I took a service at a nursing home this morning. Uh, got all dressed up and my collar and all that kind of stuff. And you go in there and I don't know if you've ever been to a nursing home. It's something that you should do probably once a year, I think. Just go and visit some people and say hi. They, they appreciate it. They've got nothing to do. They are bored witless on the whole. Anyone who would bother to step in for even a moment to say hi, they would appreciate. It is humanity as it winds down to its very end. And I'll tell you something. There's people who know what it means to hold on to something that will get them through death because death stares them in the face. It stares them in the face as they look at the beds that gradually get emptied around them and they know which one's going to be next. Uh, I know you don't think you'll ever die. That's what teenagers and 21 and 22-year-olds are meant to believe, that you never die. Uh, I turned 40 the other day. That is a profoundly challenging experience, let me tell you. Uh, I'm well on the way to halfway given average lifespan, right? But it might be this afternoon. And you desperately need someone who will get you through that. And Jesus has done it and will do it again. I want to say this is the Christian faith and its philosophical implications in a nutshell. If you read the source documents, that is what they say. Let me say, if you reject Christianity, then make sure that it is this that you reject. Make sure you understand the inner logic of it, that you see the coherence of it. Don't be merely prejudiced or worse, ignorant or even worse, base your view of Christianity on what you didn't learn when you are in scripture in year two. What kind of a dope would that be? Dopey thing. Base your view on a massive world philosophy and world view on what you learned when you were seven. Well, I said earlier that most religions were really philosophical in structure. 
ideas about how things are, unlike Christianity, uh, which I hope by now you see is an entirely different beast. It's not a philosophy, it's an achievement, although it has philosophical implications. And I indicated that the reverse was true as well, that is, that the two dominant philosophical alternatives to Christianity were themselves religions, or religious in character. In other words, what I want to say to you today is that there are very, very few non-religious people. We are religious by, by bent, by nature, us human beings. Let me say a little bit more about that. What we called materialism or naturalism, remember the view that only things, the only things that are there or the only things that can be known are physical events and their material causes, this functions as a religion. What begins as a good scientific method to be applied within the limits of the realm of science undergoes a kind of intellectual inflation and becomes a presupposition not about science but about all of reality, a kind of scientific imperialism as though science were the key to everything. You see the way this serves a religious purpose in a comment uh, that the great defender of materialistic atheism, Richard Dawkins, once made to a philosopher friend of his, A.J. Eyre. Listen to what he said. Although atheism might have been a logically, sorry, might have been logically tenable before Darwin, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Do you see the link between scientific theory, Darwinian evolution, and the religious commitment of atheism? Of course, there's no necessary connection whatsoever between the two. Perfectly possible that God is the author and controller of evolution. And whether that is the case or not is not something that any scientific theory can tell you. It's just beyond the realm of science to answer that question. It's a leap of logic. It's just a breakdown of logic to go from Darwinian evolution to atheism. It's just illogical. But you see what it does for Dawkins. He gets to say, now I can be an, uh, an intellectually fulfilled atheist. I've got my atheism and see the, the atheistic function that materialism will perform for me. This is science sliding surreptitiously into religion. The same is true for anti-realism. Uh, Roland Barthes, the French philosopher, put bluntly the religious function of the view that we construct our own worlds and our own meanings. Listen to what he said. Once the author, capital A, author, is removed, the claim to decipher a text becomes quite futile. To give a text an author is to impose a limit on that text, to furnish it with a final signified to close the writing. In precisely this way, literature, it would be better from now on to say writing, by refusing to assign a secret and ultimate meaning to the text and to the world as text, liberates what may be called an anti-theological activity, an activity that is truly revolutionary since to refuse to fix meaning is in the end to refuse God. You see what he's saying? He's saying if you refuse to fix meaning, if you say meaning depends on the reader, not on what's written, then what you've done in the end is you've refused God. What begins with a good observation we bring ourselves to our interpretation. Yes. Ends up by saying, and we can get rid of God that way. 
the point I'm making is that both of these philosophies, the two leading philosophies in the Western world at the moment, turn out to be as much religious and about religious commitment as Christianity is. We are all religious, you and I. Welcome. Welcome on board. It's good to have you. The question is not whether you'll be religious, but whose temple you will worship in. And I want to suggest that there are good reasons for you to commit yourself to Christ. And equally good reasons to suggest that you should flee from both naturalism and from anti-realism. And so let me briefly finish up by suggesting two good reasons why Christianity is the most adequate philosophy and then one good reason why you should abandon naturalism or anti-realism as quickly as possible. Firstly, if God is the single exclusive creator of the world, then it would make sense to think that he's left something of his fingerprints on the thing that he has made. In fact, there's a whole branch of philosophical and theoretical science by major academics that's grappling with the issue of the testimony of the world that God has made to its creator. There are two main branches. The first is to do with the origin of the universe and in particular recognising that the universe is not eternal. One of the main scientific developments of the, the last century was the formulation of the Big Bang Theory. That is that the universe, including space and time itself, began or came into being. Interestingly, of course, it was the primarily atheist scientists and philosophers who most objected to this discovery, tried to find any way out of it that they could, and for good reason. For there is a simple argument that runs like this. It's very powerful. Everything that begins has a cause. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. It doesn't take much to fill the third line in, does it? Therefore, the universe had a cause. But of course, the thing is that the cause must itself not be part of the universe, not within space and time. It must be changeless and immaterial and unimaginably powerful. And even more, that cause must be personal. Why? Since there are only two types of causal explanations... On the one hand, there are scientific causal explanations which are to do with laws and initial conditions and so on. And on the other hand, there are personal causal explanations which are to do with agents and their intentions and purposes. Well, since the universe can't have as a whole a scientific explanation in that we're talking about the beginning of everything, including science, then this cause must also be personal. Immaterial, timeless, powerful, personal. That's the logical conclusion from the discovery of the Big Bang. You don't go there, that's just because you don't like logic. No wonder the atheists hated it. Sounds a lot like God, don't you think? Notice one other thing, of course. The point is not that everything must have a cause. Uh, when I taught this to my year five scripture class, what's the immediate thing that they said? Well, who calls God? It's a good question. That's not the point, though. The point is not everything has a cause. 
Therefore, the universe has a cause. The, po the point is, everything that has a beginning has a cause. And the claim is precisely that God is eternal, that God never began. He always was. Now, you see the religious commitment of scientism when you see how zealously they resist uh, uh, this conclusion. Uh, a 1988 edition of the Newsweek magazine praising a great leap of imagination says that now most cosmologists believe that the universe arose from nothing and that nothing is as certain to give rise to something as the night is to sire the dawn. Now that's a lot of gobbledygook. Alan Guth, a brilliant Massachusetts Institute of Technology cosmologist, declared that the universe is a free lunch, that it came from nothing, that there was nothing, not God, not energy, not matter, simply nothing, and then suddenly and spontaneously the void of nothing gave rise to, or rather decayed into, all the matter and energy of the universe now has. Not so much a bang, but with a... <laughs> ballooned accidentally out of the endless void of eternity from a stillness so deep that there was no there or then only possibility. That's even worse gobbledygook. Alex Valenkin, a Tufts University cosmologist, says the universe as a young bubble had tunnelled like a metaphysical mole from somewhere else to arrive in space and time. That someplace else was nothing. <laughs> I like the idea of a mole, but that's even more stupid. Of course, the fatal fall flaw in all this, apart from its intrinsic nonsense, is that the entire scientific enterprise, and these are scientists speaking, right? The entire scientific enterprise depends precisely on the assumption that nothing comes from nothing. Maria in The Sound of Music, you ever seen that movie? <laughs> she sang about it. Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could, so somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something... It's lousy theology, but it's good science. <laughs> All experimental science depends precisely... On, now, why is it that these intelligent ultra... I mean, these people are more intelligent than pretty much you and me, unless you're one of them. You don't put together and multiply by ten. Why? It's because of their religious zeal. It's science gone mad into scientism. And I'm saying the evidence points in the other direction. The evidence points in the other direction. This is a testimony of origins. There's also the testimony of history for taking seriously the Christian faith and its philosophical implications. Uh, there's much more to say about this, but it's, can, I, can I urge you, now is a good time directly after Easter to investigate the historicity of Jesus in general and his resurrection in particular. You see, because Christianity is an historical reality, if Jesus were dead and buried now and had stayed dead and his bones could be discovered, then I would stop being a Christian right away. It's not a bunch of ideas which you can adopt apart from the history. If Jesus is dead and buried, then frankly, Christians are the most stupid of all people. The Apostle Paul says that, just by the way. Without this historical bedrock, there is no Christianity and the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is very, very strong. Very strong indeed. There are non-Christian, Jewish, Christian scholars of every shape and variety and commitment 
who will understand and agree with the evidence that it points to the resurrection of Jesus. I want to do some negative work though as well and suggest that there is an overwhelming massive gap in the alternatives of materialism and anti-realism and in particular their entire inadequacy to say anything of substance to do with evil. We live in a world in which things are not the way they are supposed to be and you don't have to live very long or look very hard to know that. George Steiner, a philosopher and commentator who has the post of extraordinary fellow at Churchill College, Cambridge, writes in this way. This is very powerful. Inhumanity is, so far as we have historical evidence, perennial. There have been no utopias, no communities of justice or forgiveness. He goes on more specifically, for the whole of Europe and Russia, the 20th century became a time out of hell. Historians estimate at more than 70 million, 70 million, the number of men, women and children done to death by warfare, starvation, deportation, political murder and disease between August 1914 and the ethnic cleansing in the Balkans. But we're educated, you might say, and that's where our future lies. Well, listen to what he says. He says it's not only that education has shown itself incapable of making sensibility and thought resistant to murderous unreason. Far more disturbingly, the evidence is that education, what he calls refined intellectuality, artistic virtuosity and appreciation, scientific eminence, will actively collaborate with totalitarian demands or at best remain indifferent to surrounding sadism. He concludes to repeat... Violence, oppression, economic enslavement and social irrationality have been endemic in history, whether tribal or metropolitan. But the 20th century has, owing to the magnitude of massacre, to the insane contrast between available wealth and actual misery, to the probability that thermonuclear and bacterial weapons could, in fact, terminate humanity or his environment, given to despair a new warrant. He says, if you resist the temptation simply to numb out, and that's what we do, isn't it, mostly? You just play another track on your iPod because you can't bear to face the reality that we live in a world which is chock full of evil and so you switch pay TV channel. If you resist the temptation simply to numb out and take all this with full seriousness, it renders plausible the famous saying of the existentialist philosopher Albert Camus, the only serious Philosophical question is that of suicide. And here's my point. If you face the reality of this world, what has naturalism got to say about this? You know what the answer is? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. Richard Dawkins again. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and we won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if at the bottom there is no design, no purpose, no evil and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is and we dance to its music. In a debate held a few years ago at Sydney Uni, Philip Adams, perhaps Australia's best known atheistic naturalist, said much the same thing. In fact, he's written to that effect in his book, Adams vs. God, I Know Where I'd Put My Money was pointed out to him that on his view he had no reason to condemn 
horrific evils like the Holocaust. And he had nothing to say. He just kind of spluttered and fulminated and said, how dare you say that? And when we waited for him to say anything of substance to the evil in this world from his naturalistic atheism, he could not and did not answer the question. It was pathetic. It just shows how terribly hard it is to be a consistent atheist. You have to say the Holocaust, just one of those things. No big deal. Some people get lucky and some people don't. That's the way it is. Likewise, relativistic anti-realism has, the only, has only got the brilliant insight that there are no absolutes, that it's all relative, that what's right for you is what's right for you. And, or in other words, uh, in the words of um, uh, the atheist anti-realist Richard Rorty, truth is what your colleagues will let you get away with. That's it. Well, try telling that to the victims of the death camps and the gas chambers. What's right for you is right for you. What rubbish. They are not so stupid, those victims. They know that there's right and wrong, and and frankly, so do you, don't you? I mean, we have debates about, yes, moral morality is just relative, but that's rubbish. And you know better. And my point is this. The only way not to be a religious hypocrite is to be a Christian. You hear that? The only way not to be a religious hypocrite is to be a Christian. There are almost no consistent materialist atheists. They keep thinking that human beings are valuable and worth caring for and sacrificing for and loving and that that is somehow a meaningful activity. Hypocrites. And there are equally few consistent relativists. They may mouth off about everything being relative until they hear about the three million people slaughtered in the civil war in the Congo and if they have any shred of humanity about them, they dump their relativism like the shoddy self-serving claptrap that it is or else remain in hypocrisy. You see, they're the only options, aren't they? They're the only options. And I want to urge you to take this seriously. It's time to face this squarely. So my invitation to you today is this. As we look at the question of philosophy, there are some options before you. I want to urge you to not be a religious hypocrite. Either embrace the failure of morality that is endemic to materialism or anti-realism, if that's what you want to do, or recognise that they just don't work. They just won't add up. They don't square with reality. And become a Christian. It's not difficult or at least it's not complex. It involves putting God at the centre of your life in Jesus. That's got some challenges to it. But it's not complex. Or at least check it out as an adult. Was Socrates who said that an unexamined life is not worth living? And I think an unexamined philosophy is not worth accepting either. And I want to suggest that if you've just swallowed whole the kind of naturalism or relativism of our society, then it's worth doing a bit of examination. I think you have a response card in front of you and you can indicate that you'd like to find out more, that the time has come for you to step back and think critically about the whole lot. And if you do that, you'll discover, I'm confident, in Christianity and in the worldview that it implies, 
something that makes the best sense of the world. It takes with utmost seriousness the reality of evil. It takes with utmost seriousness the reality of goodness as well. It speaks of the power of love and grace, the significance of forgiveness and sacrifice. It provides us with an intellectually, spiritually, morally and emotionally satisfying meaning. It is all you could want from a philosophy and more because it's not just a philosophy. It is the achievement of God in Christ.